Facebook.com forward slash The LF Show. This show is produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Monica Mohapatra, Charlotte Carpenter, Nat Needham, Natasha Gaspar, Jeannie Hopper, Joanna Pinto, and Dominic Marcella. The Laura Flanders Show is made possible from the Novo, Ford, Tomcat, Cloud Mountain, and Fonda Foundations, as well as by listeners like you. So thank you. Stay kind, stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. Art, live music, cider, wine, and snacks. Heck yeah. Come out to KBOO's first ever First Friday Art Walk event on June 7th from 6 to 9 p.m. The First Friday Art Walk is in Portland's vibrant Eastside Arts District and is the gateway into Portland's thriving arts culture, including more than 23 independent galleries. Start your night off at the KBOO Studios next First Friday, June 7th. KBOO is featuring the work of two brilliant artists, Justin Ald and Amy Kutab. There will be live music, snacks, wine available thanks to Hip Chicks Do Wine and Cider Courtesy, a Cider Riot. You will also get a chance to tour our studios. Check out kboo.fm for more info. That's Friday, June 7th from 6 to 9 p.m. See you there. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Black Queer Pride Celebration on Sunday, June 2nd, from noon to 4.30 p.m. at Multnomah County Central Library in Portland. The Black Queer Pride Celebration explores what it means to be Black, queer, and in Portland with a panel discussion, performances, and more to honor the resilience and uplift the voices of the most marginalized. Again, that's the Black Queer Pride Celebration on Sunday, June 2nd, from noon to 4.30 p.m., at Multnomah County Central Library, 801 Southwest 10th Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events.
champagne. Welcome to Preference, dear listeners. I'm Hedda, your host. Thanks for being here. This is the Queer Booth slot, 6 to 7 p.m. every Tuesday. Queer and trans news and culture. Join us every single week. Thanks to all our listeners for making community radio possible. Thanks for all our volunteers and our fabulous staff. Thank you. And thank you to Somia in the booth for making radio happen. We're grateful. Today we're going to talk about tobacco. I'm very excited about today's conversation. We have in the booth Cameron Whitten, Becky Wright, and Angela Carter, Dr. Carter. I'm going to ha- ask each of you to introduce yourselves, and then we'll we'll get into today's conversation. Dr. Carter? I am Angela Carter. My pronouns are they and them. I am the... Uh, clinical director and a physician at the Maria Cui Institute, which is a clinic housed inside of the Portland Q Center. Um, we have a variety of healthcare providers, and our primary goal is to serve the queer and trans community. Most of our patients are from the trans community. Um, we do a lot of hormone therapy and management and primary care. And uh, Dr. Cui, we did a, we. Uh we had uh, Michael Helquist on mm-hmm. to talk about his book um, about Maria Cui. Uh, fascinating. D- uh, do you want to say a word or two about how the Institute came to be named after her? Um, I was looking around for someone in the Portland area, someone local who I admired, whose legacy I would like to carry forward. Um, and Maria Cui stood out for me. Yeah, t- do you ha- can you give us a sort of a thumbnail sketch? Thumbnail sketch of her life? Yeah. Sure. Um, Kami? <laughs> yes, she was, she was an East Coaster, moved West. Um, one of her uh, famous, one of the, the famous uh, stories about her is uh, she and her partner moved to Oregon uh, so that her partner could work at a teaching job. Um, and her partner was not paid in a timely manner because the superintendent found out that she was queer. And um, Marie came with a horsewhip after him and um, demanded payment. Uh, she was a socialist. She was a rabble rouser. Uh, she was a physician. She was the first woman to graduate from OHSU uh, as a physician. And uh, she treated queer and trans community um, She did a lot of work with uh, women's health and worked with children. Uh, She did a lot of public health work in the Portland area. She started a lot of public health movements here. And just in general was an impressive human being. Thank you for that. Becky, do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. So I'm Becky Wright. I work with the Multnomah County Tobacco Control and Prevention Program. Um, And then I actually just recently became the incoming co-chair for PRISM, which is the county LGBTQ group. Um, So, yeah. Wonderful. (laughs) And Cameron. My name is Cameron Witten. I use all pronouns and I serve as executive director of Q Center, which is Portland's LGBTQ plus community center. Thanks, Cameron. What triggered this uh, conversation today about tobacco actually is a change in um, Q Center smoking policy. And uh, as I uh, imagine and understand it, that's that um, policy change is something that uh, uh, involved a number of actors to uh, make that happen. So there was some some uh, input, some dialogue from the community, from yeah. public health institutions, 
Um, tell us about tell us about this. In my opinion, it was just a, a, a no-brainer. I've been at Q Center since July, and in that time, just got to be observant and really got to see the uh, importance that Q Center provides as a space. You know, we're a space that is safe, that is welcoming, and um, seeing in the diverse ways that we're serving our community, whether that's the affinity groups, whether that's special events, whether that's being, uh, you know, um, subleasing our property to other nonprofits serving the LGBTQ plus community and learning a lot about, you know, the Equi Institute's work and seeing the hundreds of patients that they are working with every month. And so it was just seeing all of these communities, which these are vulnerable populations that we're serving, folks who are already, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, stigma and then also just exposure to a lot of disparate health outcomes. It made no sense to me that Q Center was creating an additional barrier. Because I think one thing that I think really started the ball rolling for me was with the Equi Institute, um, learning a lot about chemical sensitivities, which has been a, a big issue. So we, we were you know, very uh, proactive in reminding folks to not be coming in with scented deodorant and lotions and things like that. And at the same time, as I was learning about how to, like I couldn't even do lavender when I first got there. And like, I couldn't do a diffuser. I had to be really conscious about the chemicals that were in the air because we had a lot of folks who were dealing with you know, chemical sensitivity issues. The same time I was learning about this, every time I went to Q Center for work, I would see just tons of people out smoking. We're right next to a cannabis store, literally right next door, and folks would come out of there and start smoking. Uh, people waiting at the bus stop start smoking. So almost every time I went by Q Center, there was just smoke particulate in the air. And so it was so weird for me thinking, we're already trying to create you know awareness campaigns to let people know that chemicals in the air are harming clinic patients and vulnerable communities who use the Q Center. And yet smoking is this, the biggest pollutant that is actively happening and nobody's doing anything about it. And so after um, coming to that realization, um, it was actually the Equi Institute that ended up um, writing uh, appeal letter to Q Center's board of directors uh, last year. And um, after a few months of deliberation, uh, we were able to get unanimous support from Q Center's board of directors to support a uh, smoke-free center policy. Thanks for that, Cameron. Uh, let's talk about how that plays out in practice. Yeah, so um, going smoke-free is not something that you just snap your fingers, even though it feels like it, like we put signs up on the door, but um, we are just really appreciative for Becky, Teresa, and other folks with Tobacco Prevention Services at Multnomah County. They have held my hand throughout this entire process because I was like, you banned smoking, but what, because like, I just know people are stubborn as, I don't know, can you say crap? Can you say crap, is that a cuss word? Yeah, as crap, stubborn as crap. And so I already know, like I can't even get people to stop smoking. How can I get them to stop smoking on uh, community property where we say this is a property for community? Um, and so really learning about how Q Center has to treat this as an intentional campaign and an intentional culture shift. And so how are we actually raising awareness about why we need to be a smoke-free center? Because a lot of people don't know that until you actually make the case. Um, what you know, services, and support are we offering for people who are uh, you know dealing with addiction and then um how are we actually involved on a public policy level this is really Houston's first time of us 
making a decision like this and actually coming to our community and saying these are the public policy decisions why this benefits Q Center, but also would be benefiting other establishments who are also serving the LGBTQ plus community. So there's a lot to go in and not, you know, in on that. There's messaging, there's accountability processes, there's public policy. Um, we're really trying to bring in this um, multi-directional uh, effort to ensure that we build from this and to ensure that we are improving the health of the LGBT community that comes to Q Center. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah. Uh, so, Dr. Carter, tell us um, what role the Equity Institute did have to play in well, developing this. I believe we've been in communication about this for a while. The letter of support came from us last year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, smoking affects our community so profoundly. We have, we have in our community a great deal of trauma, and uh, a recent quote I heard is that, that is very fitting, trauma is the gateway drug. Trauma is the reason that we have so much smoking in our community. And it, I think, is incredibly precious to have a community space that promotes health. We have historically had the bars as the place that the queer and trans community it could exist. We have had bars and nightclubs, and those have never been. I mean, I'm sure some of you remember back in the 90s when people from the cigarette companies would show up at the bars and here have two free packs, and it's a party that we're throwing for you. Um, you know, so for so long, our community has been marketed to and influenced by the big tobacco industries. And it's, it's really precious to have a safe space that does not have smoking on the grounds at all. You cannot smoke. And, you know, to have young people come in, I think, and have a smoke-free place and grow up in a space that is smoke-free and not be seeing their elders, at least at the Q Center, not be seeing their elders smoking. And um, I, think that's, I think that's hugely beneficial for the community. So... I'm really grateful that Q Center has decided to stand forward on this policy and, and, and make a space for our community that is safe, that is uh, welcoming to all folks who have chemical sensitivities, that is um, a, place, a place for our community to heal. Yeah. Becky, let's talk about what the county does to address uh, smoking, uh, nicotine addiction, Give us a context for how uh, tobacco is handled in a public health system like ours. Sure. So the um, Multnomah County Tobacco Control and Prevention Program is a, uh, we focus on policy, policy, system, and environmental change. So we're not working at the individual level. We're not providing cessation resources, but we're working with organizations such as the Q Center or with health systems or even our own county to implement uh, tobacco-free policies or uh, like in a clinical setting, helping support cessation protocols, which we were trying to support uh, Equi Institute with a few years ago. Um, additionally, we work in like the retail environment to reduce kind of the availability and visibility of tobacco in our community. Um, yeah, so kind of a whole host of things related to that. Um, and I do wanna 
briefly say when I'm saying tobacco, I'm talking about commercial tobacco. I think we need to acknowledge that there are cultural uses of tobacco in native communities. Um, so definitely when I'm speaking to tobacco control and prevention, I'm talking about that commercial tobacco that's manufactured and marketed by industry to get us addicted and that kills us. So I just want to make that clear. Um, and we were really happy that the Q Center actually included a little um, uh, exemption for cultural use in their policy, which we encourage in any of the policies we work with. Cameron, do you want to speak to that? What yeah, so says? at the time when the Equi Institute submitted their letter and the Q Center's board you know, discussed the um, potential to go smoke free, one of our, you know, board members um, happened to be, uh, you know, from the Two-Spirit community. And as, you know, we got the go-ahead from, you know, the board of directors to explore language for a, a smoke-free center policy, um, was urged very early on to um, acknowledge the ceremonial purposes of tobacco for indigenous folks, but then also other communities that may use tobacco for, you know, spiritual reasons. And so we included that. I know that there's other, you know, institutions that have done that as well, Portland State University. So I was able to just to, to look at other, you know, public institutions that do have smoke-free policies and to try to, you know, bring together those best practices. Um, you know, there's also, uh, Indigenous folks who work with Multnomah County who've also been able to give us feedback about that policy as well. Um, but, you know, it is just important to recognize that, you know, we are on Indigenous lands and that there are customs and cultures that are no in no way a part of the problem or actually a part of the vibrancy of our community. And so, you know, as Becky so eloquently said, it's commercial tobacco that is destroying our communities. Um, I think with indigenous ways of living, we can actually help to re, you know, grow and rebuild our communities. And so we wanted to make sure that we acknowledge that within our policy. Thanks, Cameron. Um, Becky, let's go back to uh, thinking of tobacco as a public health concern. Um, what's that? What is the county's sort of long-term aim? What would that? What is? Does it? How is that? How is that framed for uh, public health staff? Sure. I mean, I think that means that we would love to see a community that didn't have people addicted to tobacco products. Um, it's definitely a long-term goal of uh, how how do we support people in cessation and how do we create these environments? Again, back to the, the point of public health policy is to create environments or communities where it's easier to be healthy than not. So it makes it kind of the default. Um. Yeah. Um, I one of the things that I was talking with Teresa about when we were setting up, setting up this conversation uh, was we're thinking about um, how many folks in recovery from one substance or another actually do smoke. Sort of that's sure. that's if you're going to host. Uh, an AA or an NA group you sort of have to make sure an ashtray is nearby. That's part of it. Uh, how does that play out for the Q Center, which I think hosts um, six or seven recovery groups? Is that right? Yeah, we host many recovery groups. I think it's actually more than 10. Um, and these are folks who are impacted by this policy. Just to be clear, you know, Q Center is not here to um, 
control people's personal life decisions. And so we've had to also address the reality that while we do not permit smoking on our facility, smokers are using Q-Center every day and smokers are gonna smoke. And so we are still seeing folks smoking, you know, close by to Q-Center. Um, we still have our cigarette receptacle because we want to, you know, ensure that if folks are leaving Q-Center premises, smoking, coming back, that they're not just dumping cigarette butts everywhere. And so it's complicated because um, it's not like we can now, like, it's not like... Yeah, it's not like we have banished cigarettes from the the property. Like folks are bringing them in, they have them on their persons, and um, we have to accept people um, for who they are. And I think we do need to do more to offer services. I think it's so interesting that we have so many of these you know, recovery um, programs, but we don't actually have many, I don't think we have a single smoking cessation group. And so we already know the power of peer support. We have over 40 plus affinity groups that are identity based, helping people, helping people, you know, with similar problems. And that's one of the effective ways that has helped many smokers quit is through peer support. And it's something that Q-Center has done very well. And so I think that's going to help us with um with folks who are coming to these other, uh, you know, addiction and support groups, um, having something around smoking so that they, if they feel like this is something they want to work on, that they can go to that. But at the same time, we are also trying to navigate that nuance of we are doing this smoke-free center policy because this is a public health issue and because we sh we we will not be responsible for people being exposed to secondhand smoke. And so that is clearly where we're drawing the line is that that is within our purview. It's a much longer conversation about whether or not people should or can be smoking. And so Q-Center wants to encourage folks to see the health benefits of quitting smoking, but we aren't here to tell people that they can't. Becky, what do we know about uh, smoking rates in general? Um, we're getting better. <laughs> um, I think overall in Oregon, we're down gosh, I should have wrote this one down. I was looking at specific communities in my notes. Um, I think we're down to about 15, 16% in Oregon overall. But then if you start looking at different communities, that changes. So um, for example, I think in um, Oregon, or actually in Multnomah County, LGB adults are about, lesbian, gay, bisexual adults are about 20% more likely to smoke than heterosexual adults. The data is a little bit imperfect and pretty limited. Um, we don't have any state or county data on transgender or gender nonconforming folks. Um, and then if you start, I mean, looking at race to, uh, I think uh, Native Americans in Oregon still smoke the highest rates at about 30%. Um, so I think, you know, we're seeing very different rates of smoking and tobacco use in different communities. Um, and I think as you start layering identities, too, you'll see more of that. Um, for example, uh, 2015 to 2017, we were doing surveys at Portland Pride to kind of find out, like, what does our community look like? Who is using tobacco? What are their thoughts about it? And um, the respondents who identified as white and cisgender had the lowest rates of um, tobacco use about, I think we were about 20% on those surveys. But then as you start layering and we found like um, gender non-conforming or transgender respondents who identified a race other than white were smoking at about 60%. Um, so I think it depends, I guess, is the answer in terms of what tobacco use looks like in our communities. Oh, yeah. Angela, what do you think a more uh, proactive or deliberate or 
um, even aggressive <laughs> um, approach to uh, reducing nicotine use among queer and trans folks. What do you think that would look like? Going from going from here, what we know about what folks are doing now. Well, there are there are a couple of big public health campaigns. There's the FDA. Um, Free, this, free life? this free life there there's this free life campaign that's happening on the national level and then um, smoke free Oregon is working right now on a campaign to improve messaging to the communities that are most affected that being the queer and trans community the native and indigenous community and um, black communities those are the communities that have the biggest disparities in smoking and are disproportionately affected by minority stress. Um, and so they're looking at messaging. We're, I'm working with them on messaging for the queer and trans community. Um, but I think what it needs to be is, I mean, we have, we have this wonderful togetherness in the community. We have, we have this, we may be different in many different ways, but we all come together and support each other in our various different ways. And this needs to be integrated into that, you know, just the way that we care for our community and, and smoking cessation is part of that. Um, there, there, are, there are some very inventive, great things out there. I was playing a video game earlier today on this Free Life website, which they've uh, recruited a couple of well-known drag queens to do this this cute little old-fashioned video game um, to sort of let people know about the dangers of smoking. Mm. And um, I think that's a really cute, catchy way to get people excited and interested. Um, they, they, they are working, we are working on marketing that is specific for the community to try and counteract the marketing that's come at us for so many decades mm -hmm. from tobacco industry. Um, but I think, I think that more and more organizations going smoke-free, having smoke-free policies, putting it out there to community that we are not willing for, you know, in our space for people to be exposed yeah. to secondhand smoke, to the toxins that exist from that. And we also want to support people in not smoking firsthand as well. And I think that a lot of that is going to be about yeah. self-love and self-respect and love and respect for the community. Um, which, you know, we already have that base. We just need to build on it. And those are um, amazing points, Dr. Angela. And I would just add on to that as one thing that we've also been advocating more for is the importance of access to care and access to culturally responsive care, um, because a lot of folks need help in order to, in order to make better health decisions in their lives. And as LGBTQ folks, we are facing both disparate, you know, access to healthcare, but also um, oftentimes being served by, you know, healthcare providers who are not culturally responsive. And so if you don't have a doctor that you can trust, if you can't go to a quit line that understands your experiences, you're gonna be less likely to get the trust, mentorship and encouragement that you need in order to quit smoking. And so we are also encouraging as we continue to build more messaging, ensuring that mainstream health providers are being culturally responsive and are ensuring that they are serving LGBTQ people as well, if not better than uh, non-LGBTQ folks. Hmm. Hmm. I turned 48 this year and I found myself with a chemical 
sensitivity that I didn't know I had. I mean, I had a I had an idea before, but now there's a, a number of things I can't breathe um, comfortably that I used to not notice, uh, including some basic stuff and including perfumes. And I have to sort of um, figure out what I'm gonna what I'm gonna do uh, in terms of talking with people. Hey, you you smell really bad to my body, <laughs> even though you think you smell fine. Um, so that's sort of a, a an offbeat way to come to uh, what looks like a question, which is how do we have these conversations and not um, smack people down for smoking while we're doing it? Mm-hmm. I think it's really easy to go to a place of stigmatizing people, and you know, from from a physician's perspective, I've um, I started smoking when I was thirteen, and. I had a lot of doctors shame me about it. And the reason that I was smoking was I was dealing with a lot of unpleasantry in my life. Coming out was really difficult. And um, being a queer kid in in the school and the culture that I was in, um, I, I, I eventually reached for something that I was told would be a good coping mechanism. And that struggle was really intense for a long time um, and still is you know still is and I've been shamed as a, as a person who has been a smoker throughout my life and having somebody I think who can understand the trauma and the reason for the smoking not shame <coughs> offer resources offer support I think that's that's the way to go um, I think I think that the shame piece is a really important thing to eliminate because we've already, especially in our community, had enough shame to deal with, um, and it just adds to the stress. Becky, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I would just agree with all of that, and I think uh, public health struggles with that balance of mm-hmm. of implementing policies that are for your own good, so to speak, and uh, can come across very patronizing or shaming or saying you as an individual are doing something you shouldn't do. Um, so yeah, I think that's challenging. Um, one thing the county has done is we actually, in our uh, tobacco cessation policy for our clinics, we're trying to integrate a trauma-informed model. So trying really consciously to think about like why people are using substances. It's not because they want to. Um, even trying to reframe it as this isn't a risk factor, this is a coping mechanism, and trying to really come from it from that approach uh, when working at an individual level. Um, I do think engaging community, talking with um, smokers and tobacco users about how to address it is really important. I'm also an ex-smoker. I started when I was 14. It was kind of what you did when you came out. Um, and I think trying to shift that in our community is fantastic. And these policies are helping with that. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a really delicate a balance to take because um, I'm and I always say like in my work, I don't have any issues with a single smoker. They're coming to this from, you know, wherever they're at. They've been uh, I, when you think about smoking and as a um, substance you're using, you're getting hits like if you get what, 10 hits off a cigarette that's and you're smoking 20 cigarettes a day, that's a lot of cues to keep using your substance. You're seeing it everywhere in your community. Every corner of the store has ads. So it's a really ingrained addiction. And I think we have to be really, really conscious of that. Like it is incredibly difficult to quit even when you're really motivated and want to. I've certainly done it enough times. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'll do it again. 
Oh, should I add on? Yeah. I would just um, continue to ditto <laughs> on a trauma-informed approach. Uh, a trauma-informed approach. That's the that is what our community needs. Um, trauma is a bit is the leading factor about for all of our health disparities that we're facing, and um, we can't address any health disparity if we're not also addressing trauma at the same time. And so I think one thing that I really try to think consciously about is not focusing on uh, a smoker as a problem. And I think that's constantly what happens when we are shaming somebody, we're seeing them as a problem and we're not actually thinking about, are we actually helping them? Are we loving them? We're not thinking of it in a solution kind of way. We think very reactionary, but if we really were focused on solutions, we would be listening and we'd be building relationships and we'd be focusing on trauma. And so I really encourage folks if they do feel like to, you know, tobacco usage is an issue and they want to tackle it, really be thinking about solutions. And if you're, if you're thinking about solutions, you're gonna realize that it's gonna take a lot of listening and it's gonna take a lot of actual dialogue and not so much you projecting your observations on people. It's really about having a two-way conversation and respecting people's boundaries. Because I think everybody wants to be part of a community and everybody wants healing, healing and affirming relationships. And uh, we can't offer that when we do that with a trauma-informed approach. Wonderful. I reach out to these resources. You know, you have the Equity Institute, you have Multnomah County, you have so many great resources that have been doing this work for so long. We're not alone in this work. And that's the that's the thing that I loved learning the most. When I first got the letter from Equi, I was like, oh, we're gonna make this policy. What am I gonna do with this? And the fact that I could send one letter to Multnomah County, one email, <laughs> and then get like five different brochures <laughs> from Providence Health Systems and then, you know, Centerlink and all these other organizations who had been doing this work for so long, uh, made me actually feel comforted. And it was weird, cause like, I'm not actually a smoker, but the stress of being like, oh, I'm doing this smoke-free policy and I'm having to learn so much about cigarette smoke and how it's gonna impact the community. And to know that I was not alone in doing this work, it actually, um, is ex I think that's the same thing that people need who are smokers. They just need to feel like they have a community who is supporting them in having a healthier life. And we want to help make that happen. Wonderful. We're going to uh, wrap up. Um, Dr. Carter, will you get, just give us another rundown on what the Equi Institute offers folks? Oh, sure. Um, we are a primary care clinic. We also have Chinese medicine and acupuncture, counseling, social worker, uh, massage, and uh, just a great community of people who will love you up. Thank you. Becky, what is the, what is the, the county public health system look like in a nutshell? <laughs> <laughs> sure, um, and I can only speak to the tobacco control portion of the county health system. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, we're happy to provide resources such as example policies, uh, reference referrals to Quitline, um, Lots of data and research is at our fingertips. We're happy to provide any of that. We can do like kind of the organizational presentations or talks or um, that kind of thing. Um, and then I would say, yeah, our clinics, which I'm not as intimately uh, involved with, absolutely offer cessation resources along with a host of fabulous healthcare options for people. Thank you. Cameron, I'm gonna ask you to speak to the Q Center's Safe and Resilient Campaigned. Yes, yes, yes. So um, Q Center is becoming a safer and healthier environment in more than just one way. We are becoming safer and health healthier in many ways. And so uh, today I'm excited to announce that Q Center launched our 
resilience campaign. Uh, we have called North Mississippi Avenue home since 2009. So it's our 10 year anniversary this year. Um, Q Center, you know, receives over 20,000 visits per year from communities, you know, seeking connection, support, safety. And with that, we've had a lot of wear and tear in our building. And so we have mold issues. We have carpet that's old and needs to be replaced. We have electrical wiring that needs to be fixed. Um, it is not the safest place. And we are really turning to our community to make that happen. We've already raised 75% of our $100,000 fundraising goal. And so for the month of June, we're trying, we're asking our community to come pitch in, help us raise an additional $25,000 and to really ensure that our Q Center, our Q Center is going to be a safe, welcoming environment space. So go to pdxqcenter.org. Resilience campaign is right there on the front page. And we ask you to pledge a donation and help us make this June campaign successful. Wonderful. Uh, tell us the website again. pdxqcenter.org. pdxqcenter.org. Thanks, Cameron. Thank you. Uh, thanks to each of you for joining us to talk about tobacco and the queer and trans community in Portland. I look forward to seeing what comes next. We're going to hear a little spacer, and then we'll be back with Rusty Tennant, artistic director of this summer's Outright Theater Festival. <laughs>
We're back on Preference Radio here on KBOO. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. It's the Queer Boo slot, 6 to 7 p.m. on Tuesdays. Every single week, queer and trans news and culture brought to you on community radio. Thanks to everyone who makes this community radio station part of our community. I'm Hattie, your host. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, that, by the way, was Spacer. If you if you haven't heard it before, it's the zillionth time I've played that song. <laughs> um, Sheila and B Devotion. I think it was released 40 years ago this summer, so maybe we'll do an on-air party for it. I have uh, Rusty Tennant in the studio here with me. Rusty, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself to sure. our listener? Sure. Um, uh, my name is Rusty Tennant, and I am the... Artistic director of Fuse Theater Ensemble, and I'm the producing artistic director of the Outright Theater Festival, which is why I'm here to talk to you today. <laughs> um, uh, I've been in the theater community here for about 13 years now, um, uh, off and on working in various different places, and have the privilege of uh, st- uh, becoming artistic director of uh, Fuse Theater Ensemble about nine years ago now. And um, yeah, we've been making paradigm shifting theater ever since then and every year uh, for the past eight years we have hosted the outright theater festival Uh, it's moved around the city it's performed in various different places started out at theater theater the old theater on uh, belmont Belmont. yeah exactly um and uh, as we were saying uh spent some time at post five theater spent a lot of time at the funhouse uh lounge um we did uh, sorted lives there two years ago and then last year probably most people would remember us from our production of cabaret which was we knocked it out of the park i think <laughs> we were all super happy and super proud um of that particular show it, it really came together I, I know i'm not allowed to admit this publicly but i have never seen cabaret in any form oh my lord or heard any of the music oh my god i, I just thought this that. was a queer radio show <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> all I've seen, all I've ever seen, are the still posters. Well, it's a phenomenal <laughs> show, um, and I, I like to think that we did a really good job of of putting it together. We uh, Funhouse Lounge was kind of the perfect mise en scene for the the play to take place, and it's a small little cabaret place, so you didn't have to do a lot of work um, in terms of of setting the scene for it. And we had in my mind the most phenomenal sally bowls that could ever have walked this earth sorry liza mm-hmm. um, but uh gwendolyn duffy um uh, an amazing performer here in town it's just sometimes everything just falls into place and you have the right type of actor right type of singer right type of dancer and and she was everything i mean on top of a, a cast loaded i mean d may uh roberts who's also um uh, part of this uh, part of kabu was also in the show uh, she played Fräulein Schneider, um, but I mean, top to bottom, Ernie LaJoy. Um, we're doing one of Ernie's musicals this year in the festival. Uh, Ernie was our MC. Uh, Alec Lugo did an amazing job as Cliff. Um, Glenn Williams as Herr Schultz. Go, the list goes on and on. It was an amazing production, and I, I just, if I could live every day mm-hmm. making that show again, I probably would give up everything to do that. It was that phenomenal. Rusty, tell us, uh, what what is the Outright Festival? Outright Theater Festival? Yeah. Um, so oh, about, I'm going to say 10 years ago now, uh, Fuse got together and we knew that we wanted to do some sort of celebration of the LGBTQ community. Um, we 
uh, at that stage of the game, small company, not a lot of funding or anything you know, really supporting us. So what we decided to put together was a, a week of readings, and we called it the Gay Pride Reading Series. Terrible branding, <laughs> but we did it anyway. Um, uh, and it was super successful. People really loved it. It was some of our biggest houses we, we had had up to that point. So we took a year off from it. Um, we realized that the reading component was probably a part of what we wanted to do, but we wanted to do eventually grow to do workshops and full productions and have panel discussions and, and turn it into something really special. Um, so we took a year off and then we came back at it the next year and we had created by that stage of the game what we now call the Outright Theater Festival. And Outright uh, in that first year was, was still mainly about uh, staging the readings. Um, but within a few years, we started to grow to to include uh, workshop productions and finally full productions. Um, uh, Stupid Kids, a few years ago, we did at Post 5, uh, with Post 5, uh, in conjunction with Post 5. Pour one out for Post 5. Um, and then, uh, uh, like I said, the past few years, we've been uh, at Funhouse Lounge um, doing Sorted Lives and Cabaret. And then this year... Um, we we <laughs> we took the cue and we realized that you know largely we have been a company, particularly fuse, of of white people of privilege, and so uh, we took the cue and we re recognized that this was the season for us to uh, step back and let the the people of color lead on this particular outright. So um, James Dixon, who is an actor and a director in town, came to me last year with a script called booty candy <laughs> and, and I knew I loved the title automatically. So, uh, I offered, uh, James to let us, uh, do, or for us to do a, um, a reading, a concert read of the script last year. And people laughed so hard at that script that I knew, you know, that is what we need right now. I mean, you know, if, if, if laughter is, is the best medicine, then I think we're going to, you know, will fill your pharmaceutical needs this time around because this show is hilarious top to bottom um you don't have to be black you don't have to be white you don't have to be anything you will just laugh at this it's just funny um and then on top of that we we like to do workshop productions this year we're workshopping ernie lajoy's new musical um uh, uh, the pursuit of happiness ernie some of some people might remember um has written a musical over the past few years uh, that we've staged a couple of times called Under the Influence. We did it first Under the Influence, and then we did Under the Influence All Trumped Up. Um, uh, it's kind of a campy, fun uh, musical. Ernie is a brilliant wordsmith, in my honest opinion, and um, and uh, his lyrics are amazing. Uh, he's actually he wrote a, a, a one of the, a couple of the songs, and it should have been You, which ran on Broadway a few years ago as well. So he's got some credits. Um, uh, and then uh, we're also doing a reading of The Temperamentals, which is the story of uh, Harry Hay, who is one of the founding members of the Matachin Society, and who later went on to um, found, and I think of particular uh, relevance to this community, went on to found uh, the Radical Fairies. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's, it's a story in many ways of how that all happened in the beginning stages of that. And, and we chose that particularly because um, I see us as a community gaining a lot over the past, you know, 10, 15 years or whatever. But the one thing that I worry that we might be losing is our history. 
Um, and so uh, I really specifically chose this play to kind of uh, tackle, especially as we, you know, we're in the 50th year since Stonewall, tackle a little bit of, you know, filling in, in some of the gaps for our audience. Um, who are some of these, you know, leaders before Stonewall? I mean, Stonewall, well, Stonewall was not a beginning. It was a tipping off point, you know what I mean, of, of a certain age, but it wasn't a beginning. It was, it was, a, it was a change in, in a movement that had existed for, for decades at that stage of the game. And so telling that story just a little bit, but we wanted, again, um, uh, uh, you know, allow people of color to be centered in this festival. So we brought in uh, Roy, Roy Rouse, who um, was uh, uh, the uh, artistic director uh, at Milagro. And, um, and Roy is going to, has put together a cast of mainly POC uh, um, actors. I think that, I don't know. I, I don't want to speak specifically because I don't know exactly how everyone identifies. So, um, uh, but yeah, uh, the real emphasis on telling this, what was, historically probably a very white story mm -hmm. um but bringing some uh perspective of uh, people of color into the story um and then we also have a special there's a lot going on in this festival folks um uh we have a special engagement of a play called plot points in our sexual development which is a lambda award finalist for um uh, drama this past year uh, and it's uh, by Miranda Rose Hall, and it it tells the story of Cecily and Theo. Um, uh, Cecily is a cis white woman, um, probably identifies as lesbian. Uh, Theo is a transmasculine genderqueer. Um, exceptionally interesting because there just aren't a ton of plays with either non-binary, genderqueer, transmasculine people, trans people that are out there, especially award-winning plays at this stage of the game. Luckily, there's going to be more and more as we go forward. Um, uh, but the play is beautiful. It, 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 it speaks specifically to the challenges that they go through in trying to develop their relationship together a love relationship and and how that is the same and how that is the different than what we kind of accept as heteronormative um and so uh it's a beautiful piece and that is a special engagement that we do the final um weekend of the festival and then as always every year we've always had the original practice shakespeare festival come in and do one of their gender bent works i don't know if you're familiar with ops but they do mm -hmm. they do um uh, uh, original practice Shakespeare, which basically means that they carry scrolls, they do not rehearse, they perform, mm. they cast the morning of, um, and and they those people they know their roles because they've had their roles in their repertoire, but they don't know which role they're going to get until they wake up that morning, and it's hilarious at times, and sometimes it's just amazingly touching. But this year we're really lucky to have um, uh, 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 Jen Lanier, who is a lesbian person of color also identifies as two-spirit. Um, uh, Jen is going to be performing Othello, and I've seen Jen perform Othello before, and Jen is phenomenal at Othello. So i um, really excited about that. I believe that they also have, if I'm not mistaken, a queer Iago um, uh, in that show, uh, that production as well. So they're always with us. We love their support, and we appreciate what they do. Um, they do a lot in terms of not only training young actors in Shakespeare, but do a ton in terms of um, making Shakespeare accessible to anyone because all of their work is pretty much free to the public. There was a, um article I read in The Atlantic just the other day, which was about, uh, you know, everybody debates, they bat around who really wrote Shakespeare's stuff, mm -hmm. his works. 
and and these scholars that this uh, this reporter was focusing on uh, were talking about uh, one woman in particular, yeah. and sort of pulling out the threads in um, in uh, in the plays that suggest what we would call now a feminist consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I read that article. Um, actually, Kate Mira, who is Fuse's artistic ambassador, sent me this, and she's. Uh, I have a solo show that I do called The Importance of Being Frank, which is all about what I see as Shakespeare's queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kate sent me this uh, with link with a, a message that said, I see a sister show to The Importance of Being Frank in here. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I will always sit down and, and, and enjoy the conversation about who is Shakespeare. I, I, I'm not certain that we can ever fully answer that question. So there is a bit of I will probably only entertain it for so long. I think the single most important thing to understand about Shakespeare or the person we accept as Shakespeare is that an enormous amount of erasure took place for whatever reason, whether they were female, whether they were not able to be a playwright or whether they were queer. I tend to believe that it was because Shakespeare was queer and I have a lot of reasons to believe that. Um, But, but there was an enormous amount of erasure. The Puritans wanted Shakespeare gone they wanted to, they went in and edited works for that we accepted as Shakespearean works for hundreds of years after that. So um, that's that to me is, you know, who is Shakespeare? I don't even know if we could possibly have, you know, uh, an, an answer to that. I, I, I think that they did a really good job of erasing him, uh, sadly. You mentioned um, pre Stonewall, Stonewall queer history. It's something I think about a lot. Um, I read as much as I can. I just got bitten by a mosquito. I don't know how that's possible in here. But We're in this like tiny room, <laughs> three doors behind something. It's funny. Um, yeah. So uh, you know, there's there's the sort of uh, '50s organizations, Mattachine Society, Daughters of Belize, yeah, sure. um, and all, there was all a, a, some real organizing, especially around police violence. There was in between there mm-hmm. uh, these sort of uh, local groups. Um, uh, uh, this was, you know, before Stonewall, and, and they were, um, I, and, and they were local. They they didn't have these um, national umbrella organizations that just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Christina Hanhart, who researched those groups in the mid to late '60s, notes that in her research. Um, people in San Francisco didn't really know a darn thing about Stonewall mm. after it happened. They just didn't know about it. And I think we forget that, that there are particular reasons why it's easy to think that everyone might have responded to Stonewall. Uh, it's worth noting, of course, that New York City was in pr- then and, and, and had been for decades the center of American life. Mm-hmm. So what happened in New York was what happened in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course there wasn't an internet and we forget these things and I hear um, people make um, goofy historical comparisons about um, that just aren't that just don't that just uh, uh, don't reflect the fact that folks didn't have the kind of um, information exchanges that we have yeah. now um, it's interesting I'm uh, we're doing for for the festival we're doing a panel discussion uh, 50 uh, Stonewall 50 years later and we are um, uh, Specifically, I'm looking for people who experienced Stonewall. Maybe, maybe didn't necessarily live in New York City at that time, but that they experienced the Stonewall phenomenon, maybe on the news or whatever. 
I have had a very challenging time finding people. I mean, admittedly, much of that has to do with a large part of that generation has been decimated. Um, we all recognize that as being the reality. Um, but it's also part of what you're talking about. A lot of people lived out here and, and they maybe heard about it, but it didn't have the the profound effect until someone out here a year later started to organize things a little mm -hmm. bit more collectively for the city yeah. and everything. We're just about finished, Rusty. Uh, mm -hmm. Give us the what's and where's and when's of the Outright sure. Theater Festival this year. Uh, Outright Theater Festival is running at the Interstate Firehouse Cultural uh, Center, and that is uh, June 13th is our uh, uh, invited dress rehearsal, which is a fundraiser for Pride Northwest, and we'd love people to come out and donate to that. And then the 14th we actually open, and we run through the 30th. We've got all sorts of things going on, so if you want to go to www.fusetheater.com, Ensemble.com. Uh, that will give you the information that you need. Also, just visit us on Facebook, mm -hmm. uh, the Outright Theater Festival, or you can look up Fuse Theater Ensemble. Most everything is connected there. Uh, and we're also on Instagram, uh, and I think it's Fuse Theater PDX at Fuse Theater PDX. Wonderful. And Outright, by the way, has a W in it for folks who are going to be looking it up online. Next up, Calculated Conversations. Rusty, thanks so much for joining Thank you. us. I really appreciate this. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. You're listening to KBOO, KBOO, Portland, 90.7 FM. You just heard Preference with Hedda, and next up is Calculated Conversation with David and Ken. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Transforming Hate, Mulugeta Sarah's Legacy on Thursday, May 30th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at the Interstate Firehouse Cultural Center in Portland. Thirty years ago, Mulugeta Sarah, an Ethiopian immigrant, was beaten to death by three white supremacists. This event will screen a short documentary about his life and death. Again, that's Transforming Hate, Mulugeta Sarah's Legacy on Thursday, May 30th from 7 to 8.30 p.m at the Interstate Firehouse Cultural Center, 5340 North Interstate Avenue in Portland. This event is part of the Vanport Mozoic Festival taking place until June 5th. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of a discussion entitled Islamophobia and White Nationalism in Oregon and the World on Tuesday, May 28th at 7 p.m. at the Oregon Historical Society in Portland. In Oregon, as in other places, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and Islamophobia have intersected to perpetuate white supremacist and white nationalist ideology. This panel discussion will explain those connections and will offer tools that individuals and communities can employ to help stop the spread of hate culture. Again, that is a discussion on Islamophobia and white nationalism in Oregon and the world on Tuesday, May 28th at 7 p.m. at the Oregon Historical Society, 1200 Southwest Park Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under